Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. It's been commented more than once that it has been very remiss of me not to have done anything on the famous Yorkshire car manufacturer, especially since for four years I presenting a motoring show on the Yorkshire based radio. But that is due to be remedied today because I would like to introduce to the Backseat Driver radio show Noel Stoko, press officer and librarian for the Jarrett Car Club, the famous bra- or idol-based car manufacturer that regrettably is no longer. Noel, welcome to the Backseat Drive Radio Show. Nice, nice to meet you, yes. Tell us about Jarrett. I mean, it's one of the great names that, shall we say, disappeared into history with... Yeah. The, 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 I mean, even the factory's not there. It's now a Morrison's car park. That's right. Yeah, the factory. The factory was in Idle, but at that time it was in the suburbs, it yeah. was a separate village. Uh, but the the actual history of Charles goes back to uh, the very turn of the century. Actually, uh, uh, William and Sarah Jowett ran a blacksmith shop uh, in in Kensington Street in Bradford, and they had five children, including Ruth, Ben, and William. Now they, the, those three out of the five children set up uh, an, an, engineering, an engineering business of their own in 1901 uh, called the Jarrett Manufacturing Company and yeah. they, they each put in £30 and s- to set up the company. Which would have been quite a lump of money It, back it was then. a lot of money then, yeah. But in those days they repaired bicycles and they repair engines for things such as the Dion and Aster because they were the main cars at the time. Yeah. Uh, then they moved to larger premises in 1904 when they moved to uh, uh, Burling- back Burlington Lane in uh, off Manningham Lane in Bradford. Um, but at that time, Ruth sold her share of the business for £60 to Arthur Lum- Lamb. So she doubled the money in the first three years, basically. So it's a good Yorkshire lass, made a bit of brass. She knew, she knew what she was doing, yeah. And anyway, the two brothers... Uh, then set up the the the, the Jarrett car car business. Uh, they experimented with a uh, with a various engine types uh, until 1906, when they produced their first car mm. with a flat twin engine. Yeah, that's horizontally opposed. So I mean, that's the one thing Jarrett are famous for. Completely famous for, because all their engines were flat, uh, horizontally opposed, mm. either twin or four-cylinder. Yeah. The four-cylinders didn't come till much later. Uh, but um, they experimented with this car for uh, for four years, basically. And then in 1910, they decided to go into production. And um, by the time we got to 1913, they'd built 12 cars. Yeah. Um, so th- they were quite early on in, in the manufacturing of cars. Yeah. Um, now... They made more cars up until 1916, they made 48 by then, but they, they ceased making cars then because uh, 
they switched to armament manufacture during yeah. the First World War. Um, but when in 1915, before they stopped building the cars, they still had tiller steering, which was very outdated because every every other manufacturer had converted to a proper steering wheel. Yeah. So the Jowett brothers thought, well, we're going to have to alter this because we're, we're out of touch, really. So they decided they would uh, mail drop all the owners of Jowett cars to ask them, should we switch to a steering wheel? <laughs> and, and, and when the result came back, you know, Yorkshire folk not liking change and the like, uh, they still voted in favour of the tiller. But anyway, Plus there was the comment, how much more is it going to cost yeah, to have but, a steering wheel? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but anyway, the, the Jowett brothers said, oh, sod this. We're, 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 we'll do a, a proper steering wheel anyway. So all the cars from um, when they started production again after the... Well, they made one or two before the, the, the 1916 cut-off where the 48 cars were made. There was there was several with steering wheels by then. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, there was a layoff until after the fir First World War. Um, and another typical example of the Jowett brothers being Canny Yorkshireman was uh, they bought a plot at Idle, which was a worked out quarry, which yeah. was owned by the council. Uh, they bought the quarry for £100 from the council. And then uh, uh, they, they're in, the, in the wisdom, they decided to sell the tipping rights to the council. So that the council then paid them to fill all these holes up on the site mm. with, with rubbish. So basically, council give them their money back. Absolutely, <laughs> I just got to say, they ended up buying this plot, having this plot for nothing, basically. So uh, uh, that was very clever of them. And then, of course, they built the new factory in nineteen, which was opened in nineteen twenty, and car production started again properly in nineteen twenty. Yeah. Uh, the first model was a, a two-seater called, uh, which was a flat twin engine again, and uh, that ran for. Well, quite a long time, right through the 20s. Um, uh, it was known as the Short Two. And then in 1923, they brought out the Long Four, which yeah. was still the same engine, but it was a longer chassis and had a big long body with seats in the back as well. Uh, the, the Short Two had a dicky seat where you opened the, 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 what would have been the boot. Uh, so also known as a mother-in-law seat. Well, it? yes, they normally <laughs> shove the kids in there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, but another nice twist I like of the Jowett brothers was, uh, when they first started manufacturing the cars in 1911, really, when the first ones started to be produced, it had a 6.4 horsepower engine. And the Jowett brothers were concerned about this because most manufacturers were selling eight horsepower cars yeah. and so the general consensus of opinion was it was underpowered mm. so the Jowett brothers thought right well we'll just advertise it as an eight horsepower car which they did yeah sales picked up nicely but then in but it was still the same engine still the same engine <laughs> but it, it, it gets better than that because uh, uh, in 1920 um the rac brought out new taxation uh, methods for taxing the car and if it was a seven horsepower car it was the cheapest uh, yeah. band for taxing a car. So the Jowett brothers said, right, well, we'll, we'll say it's a seven horsepower okay. car now. <laughs> and it, but, it, but it was still a 6.4 engine in it. Yeah. So uh, uh, if you read the paperwork, it, they've had two engine changes, but it didn't do anything at all. It was still the same one. Same, so, same, yeah. so, you know, they always say... Shrew, that, shrewd marketing. Yeah, they always say there's a right way and a wrong way and a Yorkshire way. Well, yeah. that's a, 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 you know, a typical example of that. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, but that's one of my favourite stories. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the uh, we then 
the Jowitz were very popular in our area across the West. So I'm going to say. Did I conclude they sold well in Yorkshire? Absolutely. In Yorkshire brand. Yeah. They weren't really, really well known in the south at that time. Yeah. Uh, but um, um, we also have a, a nice record in the fact that we are the oldest one-make car club in the world. Um, now, considering they set up the the Northern Jowett Car Club in 1922. Yeah. Um, when they hadn't built that many cars, you'd be looking at less than 300 cars by then. Yeah. There was such camaraderie having a Jowett car, they had they set up their own club. And then uh, a year later in 1923, they set up one based in London because cars were beginning to trickle down by then. Yeah. Uh, and so they set up the Southern Jowett Car Club. And both of these ca car clubs, plus other ones in other parts of the country, the Midlands, Scotland, what have you, they all had individual Jowett car clubs. But when the first Second World War came, um, all the clubs ceased apart from the Southern Jowett car club, the 1923 yeah. one. So we've had a continuous history from 1923. So it's our big year next year when it's going to be our centenary and we're going to have a lot of events during the during that year. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself now. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Don't worry about it. But the, 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 the Jowett brothers were always good at finding free publicity. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was, a, there was a huge sewage complex built in Bradford, uh, Eschalt in Bradford, and uh, um, there were miles of tunnels underground yeah. and with a big space in the middle and for some reason the mayoral council uh, committee decided it'd be nice to have a, a banquet down there to, to, <laughs> to, 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 to celebrate the opening of this sewage works and um, the, the that could only be in Yorkshire really absolutely <laughs> yeah so they, they asked various car managers oh no we can't drive down there because there were circular tunnels anyway, Jowett Brothers said, oh yeah, we can do it, no problem. So, so they predated the Italian job by quite a long Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there was a nice article about that a while ago, comparing the two. Uh, so, But they couldn't go too fast because they'd, they'd go too much on one side. Yeah. So anyway, they drove down, they had the meal and came back out again. But they got a lot of publicity with that. But the, the biggest publicity they got was in 1926, uh, which was when um, the... Uh, uh, Oxford MP Frank, Frank Gray. He he worked in Africa a lot, and he was bemoaning the fact that the uh, the British car manufacturers weren't building suitable cars for colonial use. Yeah. And he said to the motoring manufacturers, "I want to have two cars to cross Africa." Yeah. Which had never been even thought of before because there's no proper roads or anything. But anyway, um, uh, nobody accepted the challenge. Uh, but so, I mean, it does something. A lot of the cars that were famous for like desert use, etc., yes, yeah. were the two brands that spring to mind were Rolls Royce because Rolls Royce did a lot. Yeah. They haven't always been the big super duper luxury car. They were no, uh, you, yeah. they were used for all sorts. Yeah. And of course, Citroen used to yes, disappear yeah. out and yeah. prove the cars yeah. could do all but, this. But some of the cars in the those early days, back in the twenties, they were too heavy. Yeah. Uh, going on the sand, whereas the Jout was a light car, uh, and speed wasn't really a priority it was um, managing the conditions they were traveling in and just so, pure yeah. durability that's right so anyway uh, frank gray had thrown this gauntlet down and of course the jowett brothers thought right we can, we can do all right out of this yeah. so uh, they said to frank gray we'll give you two cars mm. uh, to cross africa 
Um, but being canny Yorkshireman again, this said, you can buy these cars, mm. and when you've crossed Africa, we'll give you your money back. Yeah. So there was a financial incentive for Frank Gray to yeah. cross it. I think he'd have probably thought twice about some of the problems he had later on, yeah. uh, on the actual trip, because there's no roads. But uh, And there was a middle section of about uh, 1,300 miles where there was no roads and no fuel. So they had to have a trailer attached to the back of each car, uh, which was full of petrol and water and one thing or another. Um, and so the, the middle section, they were on their own, literally. Yeah. Uh, there, was, there was no backup. Uh, and anyway, uh, Frank Gray went to the factory and said, well, we could do with a long wheelbase one, but we don't need back seats. We need it more like a, like a pickup. So yeah. that's what they did. They had two cars made. And uh, these cars <coughs> were going were going to be shipped out to Africa and um, they had some sort of press conference and uh, some chap had got up and said are you seriously thinking you can cross Africa with these two cars and Ben Jowett said you wait and see yeah and of course uh, the advertising people latched on that and one car had weight painted on the side mm. and the other had C painted on the car yeah. side and those two cars were always known as the wait and see cars <laughs> and uh, Anyway, they, they, they landed in uh, Africa and, and they crossed Africa uh, west to east in 60 days, yeah. uh, which 13 days of which were rest days, so they did it in 47 days basically, but yeah. nobody gave them a, a hope of doing that, but uh, they did, and they, they, they hired uh, some native uh, people when they got to Africa, one of which was called uh, Bismarck, mm. uh, who... Uh, who was the mechanic? Yeah, I didn't need him an awful lot because the cars were very reliable. Um, but anyway, he said he would cross Africa with them, provided they would take him back to England for an extended stay in England. Yeah, which they agreed to do. Uh, so anyway, cut long story short. Oh, they managed to uh, rescue a slave girl as well who was in in Manacle somewhere, uh, and they took her to the British uh, consul somewhere. Yeah, so. Uh, uh, it was quite an eventful trip, but mecha mechanically, the cars were really good. Uh, and well, they crossed Africa, and uh, when they came back from Africa, they brought Bismarck with them, and and he toured the whole of the country to all the Jowett agents yeah. uh, with these two cars, which were left exactly as they were, with all the paintwork burnt off and what yeah. have you, and Bismarck with them. So I think you know he was quite a celebrity yeah. by the time he'd been all around the, about around the country. So, uh, yeah, that was another fantastic ex experience. I think the one thing about that era of car, I mean, it might sound strange, but what made them so good was simplicity. Absolutely, yeah. And they built the car. They were light, they were light cars. They were, they were advertised as light cars, uh, but they were sturdy. They were well-made. Uh, there was nothing fancy on them. They were just hard-working vehicles, and people liked them because of that. Um, they weren't too complicated, they were very straightforward, and I say very robust, cheap to buy, cheap to run, so they were very popular with people just getting a bit further up the, um, the salary range. Yeah. People were buying, car, buying Jowett's because they could afford to buy one. Yeah. Um, and the, the advert was that they could run for a, for a penny a mile. <laughs> uh, uh, which is quite ironic when you think of what we're paying nowadays but um, uh, they, they made a great success of being thrifty 
uh, but reliable at the same time. Yeah. So yeah, it was a good exercise for them. And uh, uh, but basically, they continued like that right the way through the twenties, just with a twin cylinder engine. Uh, and then in 1935, uh, they decided to bring out a four-cylinder engine, uh, a flat four, of course. Um, How did they decide on the flat? Well, the Jowett brothers, they, they experimented in the early days with a 55-degree a um, um, V engine, and they did a three-cylinder uh, air-cooled engine, but they decided... Well, they called it balanced power. Yeah. That was their adverse. Uh, Jowett's they're smooth because they've got balanced power. They reckon go, the, the pistons going horizontally made the car run smoother. smoother. Than vertical. Yeah, yeah. yeah smoother and vertical. But the, uh, there was quite a few early light cars which had uh, flat engines, but there was only Jowett's who continuously had them, and they continued right the way through the war, up, up to the war and after. But I'll tell you about after later on. Uh, but... Um, the four-cylinder engine was a really good engine. It was very successful, the engine. It was built in-house by Jowett. Um, Did they design it themselves? Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Everything was done in-house in those days. I mean, the advertising, I haven't really mentioned advertising, but they started advertising the Jowett cars in the early 50, in the early 20s. And um, they were wonderful. I mean, I did a book on uh, Jowett advertising because they were just so funny and clever. Uh, there was a chap called Gl uh, Gladney Haig who wrote the adverts for them. But, I mean, in a nutshell, they, they were, nearly all of them were a full-page advert in the motor or the autocar or the light car in those days. There was three, light car and cycle car, they called it. There were three main car magazines. And every week, there was a full-page advert advertising Jowett's. Now, they were always the same. They had, a, they had a floral border going around the A4 size, and then in the middle, there was some text. Um, but all sorts of obscure things, uh, how uh, Hobbes got a century at uh, Headingley and one thing or another. Uh, and um, uh, they, they always, you always used to end up saying, if you're interested in Jowett uh, cars, send us a postcard and we'll send you a brochure. Yeah. A lot of the adverts didn't have a picture of the car on, it was just text. Yeah. You know, uh, picking daisies in, on, in the moors and all sorts <laughs> of really obscure things. But they were so, well I think they are incredibly funny. And, um, well, uh, my I suppose one of the things is if you read it and you don't see anything about a car, you'll look yeah, and think, yeah, what's that got to yeah, do with yeah. these cars? Yeah, and, you know, the, the other thing which I thought was amusing as well was it, what amused you. Uh, but um, they always extolled the virtues of Yorkshire. Yeah. And if you could take a pop at Lancashire at the same time, <laughs> they would do. So it, it, was very, it was very good, yeah. So uh, uh, Mike Wormson Williams, he was a motoring uh, journalist. Uh, I knew him very well. He wrote a book called Automobilia once, and he put a piece in the book saying it would be a worthwhile exercise to uh, do a book on the Jowett adverts. Yeah. And, uh, well, a few years later, I, I, I've actually done one, and I got Mike to do a, a forward for me, which I was very grateful for. Yeah. But I'd say, it's just a... It's just it's just like a snapshot of the twenties and thirties, which is so different from what it is now. You know. Oh so, yeah. 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 But so where did, where did they progress to after that? Well, in 1935, they brought out the uh, four-cylinder engine. Um, now that's it's still horizontally opposed. Still horizontally opposed. But 1935, there was a, the vogue for streamlined cars. Yeah. 
And so the Giant Brothers thought, oh yeah, we'll do one of these. And so they brought out the Jason, which was the Deluxe, and the Jupiter, which was the Saloon. Um, now these had a very raked front radiator and a very raked rear to the car. So they were, they were quite avant-garde for, yeah. for Yorkshire folk who threw their hands up in horror and thought, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, from the description, they were a different car, full stop, compared to what was knocking about at those times. Yes, but there were quite a few people, you know, uh, Hillman and uh, various other, oh, uh, Triumph, quite a few people were making these sort of, uh, sort of uh, streamlined cars. But yeah. I'll say it was a disaster for Jowitz <laughs> because nobody wanted to buy one because it was too too modern for our way of thinking. You yeah. know, it couldn't have possibly have anything like that. So they, they always kept Yorkshire in mind from the sounds of it. Yes, they did, very much so, because uh, right up until the war, they sold cars all over the country, but mainly in the north of the country. Yeah. I mean, they were best known there. So uh, anyway, to cut long story short, they only made about 300 in total of the two models, uh, and then they reverted back to more uh, staid yeah. saloon, um, which they had brought out two models. There was the eight horsepower and the ten horsepower. Mm. The bodywork was identical, but the eight horsepower had the twin cylinder engine, and the ten horsepower had the four cylinder engine. Yeah. So they continued making those right up until the outbreak of the war, and then uh, once again, motor manufacturing ceased then yeah. because they uh, went back into armaments uh, building again. Yeah. So. Uh, um, that's really where the pre-war ends and then the post-war is very different. Um, in 1935, the, the, the company had grown quite a bit by then and, and William Jowett was very keen to float the company on the stock market yeah. and make it a limited company. But Ben was very anti that because he wants to keep his you know family-based concern yeah. really well i suppose the thing is if it if it keeps a family-based concern it it does away with outside interference and absolutely uh, and in many ways that was the downfall but i'll tell you more about that in a minute but the, the thing was william wanted to go ahead with it being a limited company ben didn't so he resigned in 1935 yeah then at the outbreak of war in 1939... Because I suppose by 1935, the clouds of war were looming. Yes. Hard. People yeah. realised this was going to happen, no oh, matter yeah. what anybody did. Absolutely. It was on, it was on the cards. Yeah. yeah, and also, they were both getting older by then because, you know, they've been manufacturing cars for over 30 years. Yeah. And uh, I'll say, when war did break out in 1939, that's when William Jowett decided to sell out as well because yeah. he didn't think he was he'd be he'd be too old to yeah. start the company up again after. And the were there war. any Jowett children coming up? Well, there were, um, but what happened was it was sold out. It was made into a limited company. Bankers invested money in one thing or another. Um, they then started a post-war range of cars, which included the the Javelin Saloon and the Jupiter Sports Car, yeah. which were a completely different concept to anything Jowers had done before. Um, they headhunted a chap called Gerald Palmer uh, from the Nuffield Group uh, to design a car for them yeah. post-war. Now they got him in 1942, he came up to have a look at the Jowett factory and wasn't particularly keen on what he saw <laughs> uh, and so he went back to Nuffield but 
Jowitz were very keen to get him because he was obviously somebody who was a go-ahead person and he knew what he was doing. Yeah. So anyway, they went to see him at his home in Oxford, which he designed himself, by the way. Uh, he built his own home. And um, he uh, was persuaded to come on the, on the proviso that he was left to his own devices to design the car and yeah. get on with this. Now, he was working under Isigonis at the time, All right. who was wanting to design the Morris Minor. Now, the early ones were called the Morris Mosquito. Uh, but anyway, Isigonis wanted to put a flat four engine in the Morris Minor, but they wouldn't let him because they already had a four-cylinder inline yeah. engine already of their own. But when Gerald came up to Bradford, he wants to do a flat four engine as well. Yeah. And of course, the Jarrett the, the factory said, brilliant, because that's all we've ever done. Yeah. So he was allowed to do, do a flat four engine. Uh, it was different from the pre-war one because it was overhead valve and uh, it, uh, a lighter design. It was basically an aluminium um, design and it was um, quite advanced at the time. So when the car was finally built uh, and um, it was launched properly in 1947. It really took the motoring world by storm because they couldn't believe York, a Yorkshire firm like Jowett could produce such an advanced car. So I conclude uh, up to Ben, they were still known for producing yeah. good, basic, reliable yes. cars, but nothing fancy. Nothing it, fancy. If you wanted something a bit luxurious, you went elsewhere yes. for it. Yes, yeah, that's very true. Now, in many ways, had they stayed as they were, uh, pre-war and brought out the range of similar cars after the war they may well have lasted longer than they did do because yeah. they, they were beset with problems uh, because there was a lot of mechanical problems to start off with the javelin engine uh, they were very prone to breaking the crankshafts they were prone to having head gaskets blow and um, uh, they had gearbox problems later on as well but um, the actual car was a fantastic car um, and I'd say the motoring press couldn't believe Jowett had built it. Yeah. But unfortunately for for the for Jowett, uh, Gerald once he designed the car, uh, he went back to the Nuffield Group. He had a better offer from them. But his argument was he was a car designer, not somebody who was to sort out the a, a snagging person to sort out all the problems. Yeah. Uh, so that they then had a, pro a problem with. Uh, a, perce a perceived reliability and um, um, it all got a bit out of hand really um, but basically I, my view is if they'd had more money put into the car um, before it was launched rather than the public basically uh, the 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 car them, yeah. and finding out all the problems and then having to fix them afterwards so uh, uh, the, the um, Lord Montague, he wrote a book called Lost, Lost Causes of uh, Motoring and it showed you all the different makes of car that went, bust, uh, went out of, uh, out of uh, production and he referred to Jarrett as the clock that lost its contentment, <laughs> which, I th which I think is a good way of describing it because it was a huge leap into the unknown uh, which could have been an absolute um, wonderful um, way forward for them. But as I say, that there was all sorts of problems. They couldn't get steel like everybody else couldn't after the war. They could only export cars. Well, I was going to say there was the big thing after the war that you've got to export cars. Absolutely, you have to export them. And so the outcome was, even though it was launched in 1947, 
you couldn't buy a, a javelin in this country until late on in 48 because they were all going overseas yeah um, but to keep people interested in the cars they entered a javelin uh, in the uh, spa 24-hour race and they also entered it in the 1948 Monte Carlo rally yeah now um, the Monte Carlo rally in 1948 uh, they had two local drivers for it uh, which was um, Tommy Tommy Wise and Tom Wisdom yeah Tom Wisdom he was a motoring journalist and Tommy Wise he had a, a Jowett agency uh, and anyway they said they would drive the Javelin in the 1949 sorry 1949 Monte Carlo rally I think I said 48 before but anyway uh, um, the Jowett factory said they would provide a car but they wanted Gerald Palmer to go with them as well. Mm. They didn't make them buy them, I conclude. Like the no, other no, 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 no it, I think it was made available to them, yes. So anyway, but we want it back. Yeah. Well, the outcome was uh, the, the, the two Tommies didn't want Gerald to drive it too much because they thought he'd be too soft on his baby, basically, because yeah. they, they drove like lunatics. But anyway, they won the, they, they won the one and a half litre class in 1949, which and they also won the two-litre class in the Spa 24-hour race yeah. for 1949. So it then was very popular with rally drivers in the early 50s. Because uh, the, the, motorsport has always sold cars, especially yeah, in that yeah, era, the 20s, yeah, th yeah. part of the 30s, mid-40s onwards, mm. and 50s, it sold cars. Absolutely, yes. Now the outcome was, with the success of the Javelin, um, it was suggested that they ought to make a proper sports car, yeah. which was basically uh, would use the javelin mechanicals. And now they ha they contacted um, um, oh, I'm just trying to think of his name, uh, uh, Eberhorst. He was uh, Professor Eberhorst. He designed the 19 the, the 1930s ER racing ERA racing. No, sorry, he didn't. He he. He, he worked on the auto union yeah. pre-war cars and then after the war he joined ERA yeah. and uh, ERA contacted Jowitz and um, uh, they wanted to produce a sports car in conjunction with Jowett and uh, uh, the um, Eberhorst, he designed the, ER, he designed the, the Jupiter chassis which is a fantastic chassis, Jupiter yeah. chassis and um, ERA designed their own saloon body to go on the car, which the Jowett factory didn't like. Uh, so they built the, the Jupiter two-seater sport, well, it's technically a three-seater because it's a, a bench seater and a, and a column gear change. Yeah. So they designed what they thought was a more suitable sports car, which is very similar in some ways to an XK120, but a bit more bulbous than the 120. So um, that sold very well for them but it was expensive to build but um, by then there were, it was a problem for Jowitz because reliability had become a problem and to save money uh, instead of using the in, in, instead of using the Briggs um, gearboxes they decided to build their own in-house ones which turned out to be a disaster because they seemed to be able to engage two gears at the same time and seize the gearbox. <laughs> so they literally had they literally had hundreds of cars coming back right, under yeah. warranty to sort out the gearboxes. At some stage, they had to hire the 
the Bradford football grounds to store some of these cars in before they could resolve the problem, which they did, of course, but by then they had a reputation for uh, unreliability and, of course, they were expensive. And by, by the time you got to 1952-53, Ford, Austin, Morris, all the other big manufacturers were manufacturing cars much cheaper. Right, that is the end of part one of the Jowett interview with Noel Stokoe.